0: Ever wish there was a fast way to get up to speed on a complicated topic? Well, you're in luck. This series might just be for you. As providers, it's hard to stay on top of all the specialties in a multi-specialty world. So join us for the month of October and get back in the loop about everything that's happening in cochlear implants, from the fundamentals to what's changing with candidacy, patient characteristics, and the latest in tech. And you're gonna hear it from the best of the best. Hit the subscribe button and be the first to know when an episode drops for this MedOd Pro Doc Talk special series podcast on cochlear implants. Sponsored by Envoy Medical. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Doc Talk by MedOd Pro. Today, we are continuing our series on cochlear implants, and I have Dr. Camille done here with me. Hello, hello. Good Hi. To back. Yeah, it's great. Today, our guest speaker is somebody that you know very well, and we're so excited to have him, Dr. Bruce Gantz, who is a neurootologist at the University of Iowa. So hello, Dr. Gantz. Great good, to see you. Uh,
1: good morning. How are you?
0: Um, we are doing great today, and we are, you know, kind of diving in on a number of topics, you know, we're kind of a little bit beyond candidacy and kind of down into that other indications and those aspects. So we're kind of more in the complexity of it. However, I think that what is interesting right out of the gate is, and I didn't realize is that you are one of the first implanting surgeons in the U S and that has to come with quite a story being one of the first it's Camille and I were, we talking earlier and we said, you know it's always easy once you've accomplished something in your your 10 20 30 years down the road and you can look back and go you know that went that went fairly well you know we're we're pretty excited <laughs> about where we are but we said boy i don't know what it feels like out of the gate without knowing one thing as she's mentioned you've got a cochlear implant in your carry on bag or i don't even know how the story goes but i mean that is quite <laughs> an adventure from oh, that point to where you are today. So you truly are one of the pioneers when it comes to CI in the US particularly. And so we'd love to, I'd love to get a little insight into how do you come up with a, I'm packing this in my suitcase?
1: <laughs> well, I guess to start with, I've been fortunate and um, I've been at the right place at the right time. And during my residency uh, at the University of Iowa, uh, my chairman at the time, Brian McCabe, uh, decided that he wanted to get involved with cochlear implants. And so as a senior resident, uh, the fifth year resident, he sent me to Bill House in Los Angeles to, to spend uh, a couple of weeks learning about the cochlear implant. And that was the single channel implant. That was uh, 1980. and uh, And so Uh, I was fortunate to learn about it. We came back and we implanted our first uh, patient uh, at the University of Iowa in, uh, I think it was April or May of 1980, a a single channel device. We limped along with that for a while and we really got excited because these patients at the time, we were uh, implanting only patients that were really profoundly deaf could hardly hear themselves speak. At, uh, and that was the indication. And uh, we, we helped them with lip reading. That single channel device really did not improve uh, word understanding, but it did help them with lip reading. So fast forward, uh, I, I decided to stay on at the University of Iowa. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to go to Europe and study at the University of uh, Zurich uh, with Ugo Fish. And he was a outstanding skull base surgeon and and McCabe arranged that for me. So in 1982, after I was on faculty for a year, I went to Zurich and uh, I was... uh, One of the things that I also wanted to do was to learn about the cochlear implants that were being developed in Europe because I knew that uh, we had a couple of sites in the United States, but also Europe was being very active at the time. And so I was fortunate enough to uh, meet the Hochmeyers who were at the University of, of Vienna at the time and watched them uh, or watched uh, their surgeon. Uh, it was uh, Broyon, Dr. Borean implant a patient. I also was able to go to see Professor Chouard in uh, Paris and, uh, and a couple of other places around the, uh, Europe uh, to see what, what they were doing. So uh, the the Hochmeiers were in the process of working with 3M at the time, and so they had a device that was really a multi-channel device, it, but it it required four different activation sites uh, to be implanted and uh, and different frequencies. And we brought that back, and I I took four in my suitcase. This is before the <laughs> FDA was involved. and we sterilized them and put them in four patients and lo and behold they did work but they didn't they weren't not multi-channel devices that that we thought we we would have and they didn't do much better than the the single channel device about that time then uh an audiologist uh came into my office and and from uh, uh australia and she wanted to talk to me about a new device in uh in Australia, that was truly a multi channel device. So, this was uh, 1982 in November and December of 1982. Uh-huh. I went to Melbourne and to Sydney, Australia, uh, to meet Graham Clark. And uh, we got involved in that the, the company at that time was called the Nucleus Corporation, Cochlear uh-huh. Corporation. And so um, I met Paul Trainer, who was the CEO of the company and we decided that we would implant somebody in the United States and we would be the first people to do that. So we, they had implanted a few in Melbourne uh, and now it was ready for uh, Nucleus uh, Corporation to try and see if this worked anyplace else. And so we were the first center outside of Melbourne, Australia to implant a, a couple of devices, and that was in 1983.
0: Did you have to bring those back in your suitcase, also? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> um,
1: at that time, at that time, uh, uh, Coke or well, Nucleus Corporation was working with the FDA to bring it to the United States, and so sure. uh, we went through all the correct channels. Uh, <laughs> at that time. We didn't. I, I I didn't uh, bring that back in my suitcase. So <laughs> so it's been a it's been a really uh, a wonderful run over the past 40 uh years. Uh, yeah. So years.
2: So with it being that cutting edge at that time, I can imagine some of your colleagues um did you have naysayers? Did you have people saying, "Oh, oh what are you doing? Why how are you are you going to sabotage your whole career on this?" I mean, what do you I, I mean, looking back now, that is your career. It's pioneering. And how how did you approach that? How did that happen?
1: Well, actually, um, you know, the the person that got me uh, involved with uh, Nucleus Corporation was Diane Mecklenburg, who was working for them at the time. And she was originally from Denver. And so I was asked to go speak at a meeting, uh, which was a ski meeting in... uh, in Colorado uh, <laughs> after we had implanted a few of these devices. And people that were there were uh, were scientists like uh, Joe Miller from uh, Michigan and uh, Blair Simmons who was the, one of the early inventors of the, the cochlear mem- implant from Stanford. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, Chuck Berlin from, um, Uh, down in in New Orleans. And these were people that were really into auditory neuroscience. And when I started presenting this, they started to listen that Mm -hmm. this was really different that we had people now starting to understand speech. I mean, with the, with the, the multi-channel device, our first patients actually understood about 20% of the words. And that was the first time yeah. that there was word understanding that we were starting to report what they were seeing in, in, uh, Australia. And so, uh, actually it, it, there wasn't a lot of negativity towards me or to, to what we were doing because we were mm-hmm. doing it in the right way. We had a team. We learned from Bill House and, uh, at, in Los Angeles to create a team. Um, And we actually even put in our first grant for a program project grant in 1983, Mm -hmm. wasn't funded, but uh, at least it got our uh, feet in the water and we put together a really good team uh, that is uh, still in existence today. Uh, And we are now, uh, we've just submitted our seventh renewal for that grant. Who which, knows how that's going to ha- turn out? By the time yeah. you uh, probably put this on, it will will know one way or the other. But but it it's a uh, it's a really uh, outstanding group of individuals, and we're studying things that we never thought we would be studying in in the uh, in the past.
2: Well, which which brings us to one of the topics that you know is near and dear to your heart, which is um, patients who have residual hearing and you know, you've been such a profound advocate of preserving that residual hearing. And so just a little bit about that, you know, for years, you had mentioned earlier, the patients that you were implanting originally were profoundly deaf, they could not hear on the telephone, you know, like you mentioned, they couldn't even hear themselves speak. And, and for years, those who were who the candidates were, and, but you saw, That there was this gray area um, where these patients are not hearing aid candidates, but there's patients that could benefit between patients that are benefit from hearing aids and patients that can benefit from a cochlear implant. And there's this big gap. Most of the time, that gap were people who have good low frequency hearing and poor high frequency hearing. And, And so you wanted to develop a way to help them. And can you tell us a little bit about how that sure. kind of spurred the electric acoustic or hearing preservation techniques and and surgery and outcomes?
1: Well, so in in the early nineties, nineteen nineties, we um, started realizing that people that had a little bit more residual hearing actually did better, and we did a multivariate analysis on mm-hmm. our uh, patients that we were seeing. And we found that uh, those that had some residual hearing uh, actually performed at a higher level. And so we knew that there was something to the fact that people with a little more residual hearing could adapt to this acoustic plus electric. And Jay Rubenstein then uh, had a group of patients over at the VA when he was here uh, on faculty with us. He looked at them and they were doing a little bit better. And I said, well, I think that one of the reasons is that you're implanting people with a little more residual hearing. And then we did another multivariate analysis that he did. And actually those people did do better. And so (laughs) we thought, well, let's see what we can do. If We we, we started seeing some people with residual hearing. We had some children that were doing really well with uh, the cochlear implant, and they did have a little bit more uh, residual low-frequency hearing. And so we worked with uh, Cochlear Corporation to develop a short electrode, which we thought might be able to preserve some residual hearing because we knew that Back in in uh, oh golly uh, the eighties, uh, Bill House had tried to put in a single channel device to uh, help people with tinnitus, uh-huh. and he in a couple of these patients actually preserved residual hearing. So we thought, well, maybe maybe if we don't go too far in the cochlea, we could uh, do this. And so we okay. developed a strategy with Cochlear Corporation for a at first a six millimeter electrode and then a ten millimeter electrode. That actually was the first ones, the first electrode designed specifically for hearing preservation. And uh, I remember we were doing we we put our first uh, device in in 1999, and we had a we had to go to the FDA for uh-huh. approval, and the, the FDA gave us approval in 1998. We implanted our first patients in 1999. I went to Europe, and found out that uh, someone. Uh, uh, had used a med device and preserved some hearing and had written an article about that before we did. No, no big deal. But the, the fact is that we had the first device that was really designed to preserve residual hearing. And, mm-hmm. and today we still have those patients that we continue to follow 20 years down the line. Yeah. And we still have residual hearing. Yeah. So and
2: And are performing we, amazing.
1: Yeah. And so From that, we have now focused most of our research on how the brain interprets this information. And and that has been a a focus now for about the last five to six years. And it's our major focus as we are moving uh, forward and looking at the tracks and the central auditory information that is is is. Uh, perceived by an individual it's different for electric only versus electric plus acoustic and that's why we have been so adamant that Uh it's really important to preserve any residual low frequency hearing and and the reason is is that people with electric hearing only probably the average of everybody that's ever been implanted recently in the past 20 years is between 55 and 60% discrimination of single words. Now, you know, someone like you or or, or Camille, maybe not me, uh, have 100% of word understanding, uh, but 60% is better than nothing.
2: Yeah, yeah. and it's better but than where we what we came from, where you were saying it was we had outstanding to have 20% originally.
1: Exactly. But when we preserve residual acoustic hearing and we can mesh the acoustic and the electric together, uh, which is called EAS, electroacoustic stimulation in, or the, a- same C- year. in the same ear, mm-hmm. yeah. we get about a 20% bump. So those people that uh, are able to integrate acoustic and electric have about 80% word understanding. Yeah. And if we look over the past 20 years, we have not improved with all the changes we've made to uh, processing and devices. We're still at between 55 and 60% word understanding for electric only, but we have about 80% with electric plus acoustic. Yeah, and
2: and these patients typically continue to wear a hearing aid on the opposite ear. If I'm hearing you correctly, and, and I know from our research, it's those patients that are wearing have bilateral acoustic hearing preservation. So we're not messing with their contralateral ear necessarily, but in their implanted ear, you're stimulating acoustic and electric, and then they use a hearing aid on the opposite ear. And it's that combination that really helps them.
1: And and we have been focusing our research on trying to uh, preserve that residual hearing um, we're, we're working with a, a company that was actually developed in, in Iowa City and, and from our department, which is called IOTA Motion, and this is a robot that actually tries to put the electrode in very slowly and tries to reduce trauma to the inner ear and maybe help preserve hearing. We don't know if that's going to help us, but we think it is. So there are lots of things that are going on now. Uh, trying to preserve hearing as we know that it's really important that we preserve it. And and as we increase our indications, we're expanding our indications, CMS, which is Medicare and Medicaid, uh-huh. mm-hmm. told just in the last uh, couple of weeks, increased the um, uh, inclusion criteria to include people that have 60% word understanding of sentences or less and it used to be 40%. Right. So now we're going to start approaching people with much more residual hearing. Right. And you know we we know that if you have poor hearing and don't understand words it's really unusual if you're going to get a big bump with a hearing aid. Hearing aids do not improve discrimination of words. And improve loudness and so or or amplification. But if you're really having trouble understanding words in conversation. Clarity. That's Clarity.
2: Tough. That's always Clarity. what you hear patients say is it's I it's loud enough. I just can't understand it. It's I not clear.
1: It. And and the best hearing aid in the world and the most expensive hearing aid in the world is not going to help that. And so we need to think about changing our approach to people like that and doing what we can to preserve that residual hearing, because I think we will make them better than a hearing aid.
2: You know, just from my experience, the thing that patients really improve with the cochlear implant when they preserve the res- residual hearing is hearing and noise. Their right. music perception, um, it, those listening situations that I feel like patients really tend to notice the biggest improvement um, when we're able to preserve it.
1: And, and the other thing is spatial hearing. So being able to tell where sound is coming from. When you have a cochlear implant in one ear and you have some residual hearing in the other ear with a hearing aid, you cannot localize,
0: right? Because yeah. the
1: uh, speed at which the brain receives information is quicker on the uh, implant side than it is on when it goes through the middle ear and the eardrum. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it, it it is disruptive to the brain, uh, not disruptive, but it it is confusing,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, and people are, are not able to localize now. If you preserve residual low-frequency hearing in both ears, you can still localize, and yeah. so that's another advantage of trying to preserve residual hearing.
0: Sure, and that's a big one. I mean, my father is um, has no hearing in one ear from like when he was twenty. He shot a gun and it out in the country was sighting in a rifle, and it bounced off of you know how they used to have the cement walls down in the like the sure. old foundations of barns basically, and killed his ear. And that's probably one of the hardest things. With everything that he does to try to balance out and, you know, wearing his hearing aids and all of the things, it's probably one of the hardest as you watch him go to door, to door to door to door to door in our house, right? To like, where, where's the sound coming from? You know, yeah. and, I mean, to be able to reserve, preserve that for um, patients, I think it's something that when you have normal hearing or when you have a hearing that's at least equal on both sides, you don't think much about localization.
1: you know, that's the the people that have single-sided acute hearing loss, like your father did, are really disrupted by that spatial hearing., and, yeah. yes. and some of them that are like school teachers or whatever, really have a hard time because, they can't localize in the in the room where the kids are talking to them
2: or or factories you know we've heard a lot of patients say you know I'm afraid to go to work because I don't know where that beeping is coming from what what piece of equipment um is is coming at me I don't I'm know sure. where it's coming from so yeah it's I think we focus a lot on speech understanding which we should um but we forget that localization is equally important in our in our lifestyle again since we have this pioneers attention how do you think where do you see cochlear implants going you know you you have absolutely been on the forefront of everything and i was telling susan um, before we got on this call i said you know sometime you'll come to my office and say these that you're going to implant this patient or that patient and i'm thinking oh my gosh are you kidding me but it always works out and you know, you always um, you always know when to push the envelope. So where do you see this field going down the road?
1: Well, I, I think um, we're going to focus a lot on hearing preservation in the next ten years. And there are strategies uh, in the pipeline. Uh, we're doing some research right now with with dexamethasone, which is a steroid that tries to help prevent injury in the inner ear. We know that we think that the majority of people that lose hearing when we put an implant in the ear, uh-huh. it's because we do some damage to the inner ear lining and then it gets reactive and it, and it um, doesn't allow the traveling wave normally to stimulate the apex of the cochlea where the low frequencies are. So we're doing things that are uh, going to improve that. We're using the robot. I, I think that that it's just going to people are going to um, I think approach us for implants more and more as we get better at preserving residual hearing because most people are deathly afraid of losing anything that they have left. Yeah, and and I I it's hard to try and convince people that you know we're we're doing what we're doing. We know that we can make them better. But sometimes they just don't want to let go. And uh, I, I think as we get better, and if we have 90 plus percent preservation of residual hearing, then you're going to see a lot more people with cochlear implants. You know, we have probably 4 million people today that could benefit from a cochlear implant in the United States. Yeah. And most of those would be the ones with residual low frequency hearing. Mm -hmm. And we're just implanting a small fraction, probably less than 20,000 patients a year in the United States. So I I think that we're going to see a big growth in this. Uh, Insurance, Medicare covers this, and it's a big thing with quality of life and probably socialization. Mm -hmm. We think that, that people withdraw when they don't uh, interact with people because they can't hear,
0: mm-hmm. and this
1: this is a huge has a huge impact on the individual. So I'm I'm pretty certain that cochlear implants are going to continue expand. Um, we are fortunate that when we do when we do expand, we always do this on some sort of a protocol, and so that we are actually uh, in a scientific. Uh, experiment to try and figure out if what we're doing is correct.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so far, it's better to be lucky than good.
0: <laughs> we'll I, take I've them heard, both.
2: <laughs> I've heard you say that before. It's better to be lucky than good. And the problem is, is you're just good too. So
0: <laughs> it's hard about, well,
2: it's been a great, it, it's not a problem.
0: <laughs> it's, it, correct. Well, it's, it's, this is a great conversation. And, you know, talking about the barriers, Camille and, you know, that's one of the um, sessions that you all put together for the Florida combined otolaryngology meeting, you know, out of the gate is that helping patients with hearing loss overcome barriers to surgical procedures. And it's a lot of yeah. the things, honestly, that Dr. Gans has talked about today, those conversations that are happening upfront with patients to help them gain confidence in moving forward and not being so afraid of, because, I mean, I understand it, you know, of yeah. losing the little bit of residual hearing that they may have, but what's even more interesting, and it'll be interesting to hear, you know, how this all plays out is now that with the, um, you know, with moving up to that 60% mark, maybe we'll see the bar move, you know, from outcome standpoint.
1: I I tell you, we have pioneered a number of things and, and Camille has assisted with that. And as we've tried to expand our criteria, because when I see patients and mm-hmm. they miss a word or two, and all of a sudden they're not a candidate and they go out of my office crying, that's yeah. not very pleasant. Right. And, and you when know, you
2: know that they could benefit from the we,
1: technology, they, we know that they will benefit, but there are certain barriers for insurance companies and CMS or Medicare and Medicaid to, to pay yeah. for these devices because they're they're out of reach for most people to pay for out of pocket. This is a condition that yeah. uh, you know. Hearing hearing loss is ubiquitous, and you know hearing aids help up to a point, but now we know that cochlear implants are really expanding to the point where they are helping um, the majority of people that really are are struggling.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for the conversation today. We have. I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Camille oh, probably right. is going to walk down the hall and you guys are going to continue your conversation, <laughs> but which I am a little envious of right now, but thank you so much. I really um, have enjoyed today and Camille, as always, it's great to have you um, on board and helping out here.
2: Yes. Thank you so much.
1: Susan, thank you for uh, asking uh, you know, the, to express where, where we are and uh, Hopefully, we'll continue to grow.
0: Yeah, I hope so too. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this special series of Doc Talk by MedOd Pro, sponsored by Envoy Medical.